I mentioned um, uh, I mentioned last week. If if you were here, um, if you weren't here, you can you can listen online. But um, I mentioned last week uh, one of my one of my salient memories from my time in seminary was the. Um, the kind of hazing ritual that we had where we had to preach a very difficult sermon um, from the the life of John the Baptist and uh, so so uh, again you can you can hear that online if you want but but seminary wasn't all bad and in particular I have happy memories of seminary that came from not anything that I learned in the classroom or my field education or anything like that but simply the place that we lived we lived in a part of the country that was that was a wash in American history that you could you couldn't hardly swing a cat without stumbling upon something that had some significance uh, in the in the history of America for example when my kids and I would go for a bike ride we would drive pat we, we would bike past this a monument. It's a monument to the um, to the the route, the march route uh, of the the Revolutionary Army under George Washington um, as they moved between Trenton Battlefield and and uh, Princeton Battlefield. So we would just see that uh, whenever we went for a bike ride. Uh, but it wasn't just just bike rides. You know, if we if we wanted to have a day trip, we could go to Philadelphia and see Independence Hall, or we could go to the um, to the uh, Statue of Liberty. Um, uh, and we could take family vacations along the East Coast. So, for example, we saw the Washington Monument, and um, uh, we got to see Mount Vernon and uh, Fort McHenry and the different places around Washington and Maryland and um, uh, uh, Virginia. And uh, on, on special occasions, uh, different types, uh, different particular dates, there would be special occasions. So for uh, Christmas Day, one year we went to the uh, uh, the... The Delaware Gap, Washington Crossing, where we actually got to see some reenactors cross the Delaware on Christmas morning the way that they did. They waited until light, um, but but other than that, and there was more speechifying. But but we got to see that, and of course, um, on the Fourth of July, we'd see the activities, the special activities um, at uh, Princeton Battlefield. So uh, that's my daughter um, uh, going through the process of, of blasting a cannon. So. It was that, th- th- those experiences, the the American heritage type experiences, um, that that were part of my seminary experience were an unexpected treat. I was expecting, I was expecting the preaching and the the field education and so forth, but just to be part of that um, East Coast uh, American heritage thing was a was a particular treat. And one of the th- one of the many things I learned as part of that, you know, I learned how how complicated it is to to uh, fire a cannon. But um, but I also learned about the the strategy that George Washington used when he um, when he won the, the the Revolutionary War, and he didn't have it at first. He adopted it kind of out of necessity, and it was it was something called the Fabian strategy, and um, it wasn't something he invented himself. He actually adopted it. He was kind of forced into it uh, by the circumstances of the war, um, and what it what it boils down to, um, you know, a, a military historian could could say more than I could, but basically what it boils down to is not losing. That the way you win the war is by not losing, and and so people called called it a, a war of attrition and so forth. But it gets its name from this general Fabius from from way back in the in the history of Rome. He was actually uh, the the general who defeated Hannibal. You remember Hannibal with the elephants? They came across from Africa and then they attacked the Romans in Italy. And Fabian, or Fabius, was the guy who had the job of defeating them. And he figured out this strategy that all he had to do was not lose. And eventually, 
the elephants would get bored and go home or whatever it was. But, but he came up with this Fabian strategy. And basically the Fabian strategy has a long history of working whenever it's tried. But the problem is nobody likes it. Obviously, if you're attacking a country and they're using a Fabian strategy, you don't like it because likely they'll win. But people whose country it is who's being attacked don't like it either. It's not a popular strategy. And in fact, that was true um, for George Washington too. Uh, John Adams, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and a later second president, he, he said, I am sick of Fabian systems in all quarters. And the reason for that is it doesn't feel like winning. That, that it feels like not losing, which is not nearly as much fun as winning. It, you know, it's, it's very hard to, to, uh, go through a battle and maybe, maybe, um, maybe win the battle, maybe, um, not lose as bad as, as the numbers would have predicted, and then say, this is a great day, let's retreat. It's just not much fun to do that. It only works. <laughs> and I think, I think, um, we can sympathize with John Adams. If we were, if we were dealing with something like that, if we were dealing with a Fabian strategy, it's very easy to get tired of it and say, I don't like this strategy because it doesn't feel like winning. I think a lot of us sympathize more with Conan the Barbarian. I don't know how many of you had the opportunity to see the movie Conan the Barbarian, but he, he was, it was really kind of, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's breakout role. So, um, at one point in the movie, another barbarian asks Conan, Conan, what is best in life? And Conan says, to crush your enemies, to see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentations of the women. So that is what I think a lot of us channel when, when, we, um, when we're in a fight with somebody, when, when we find ourselves facing somebody who wants to do us harm or injury. We don't want to simply win. We want to crush them. We want to, we want to, uh, uh, see them driven before us. That's, that's kind of, I think that that, that comes naturally to us. So, um, that, uh, to quote a different movie, we love the smell of napalm in the morning because it smells like victory. That's what we like. We like, we like, we like winning. We don't want to simply not lose. We like winning. And the, the danger of, of the, 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 this, this desire, this deep desire we have to win is that it can make us forget our objectives. If you think about George Washington, his objective was to get the Britons, uh, it was laid out in the, um, in the, uh, Declaration of Independence. It was to make, uh, the British Empire and all the nations of the world look on those 13 colonies as free and sovereign states, as the United States of America. That was their goal. And if they lost sight of that, if they decided their goal was to beat the British, it was to, to, to vanquish the British, to conquer them, then they might have won the war, but would they have achieved their objective? Because that is the nature of this, of this deep, perverse desire we have. If you punch me in the nose, I'm not going to want to run away and fight again some other day. I'm going to want to punch you back. That we want to crush our enemies. And and because of that, because, because deep down inside us, we want to win. We want to conquer. The Fabian strategy is not popular. It only works. In our reading today, Jesus talks about that desire we have. The, 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 perspective we have of what it means to win 
What it, what, what makes winning so important? And he provides a strategy that's even less likable than, than the Fabian strategy. And again, it's only virtue is that it works. So what I want to do is I want to look at this passage. We, we talked last week about the very beginning of chapter 11 of Matthew's biography of Jesus. And what we saw then is that some disciples, John the Baptist is in prison. Um, Herod, Herod the king has imprisoned him and John sends some disciples to Jesus and said, and asked, are you in fact the one that was spoken of, the, the, um, the, the one that the prophet had predicted? Because I thought you were, and that's what I've been telling people. And Jesus answers, and, and again, you can, you can listen to that online. But when the disciples have gone, Jesus spoke to the crowds about John. Why did he speak to them about John? Because John's in prison. People are looking at John and saying, we thought he was a prophet, but he hasn't won. John is not a winner. John, looks a lot like a loser. John has been imprisoned and run the run the film forward a few frames in chapter 14, John is going to be executed. He's going to be beheaded. John does not look like a winner. John does not look like a horse you want to bet on right now. And so Jesus speaks to the crowd about John. He says, "What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A stalk blowing in the wind?" He means he means think about prophets. Is their job to wet their finger and stick it up in the breeze and say, oh, well, that's more popular today. I'll say this instead. That's not what we want from a prophet. Nobody expects a prophet to tailor his message based on the sentiments of the people around him. No one wants a prophet who blows around in the wind like a reed. He says, did you go out to see that? No, you wouldn't go out to to uh, see that. Well, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a man dressed up in refined clothes? Did you go out to see somebody who who is obviously doing very well Maybe doing good, but definitely doing well. Is that what you were looking for? Somebody in a, in a uh, slick suit and, and, you know, Italian loafers? Is that what you were looking for? Because you went to the wrong place. The place to look for that is not in the wilderness, not where John was baptizing. The place to look for that is in royal palaces. Jesus says, you don't expect a, a, a prophet to look like somebody that people are glad to hear, people who, who are, they're happy to support him. So, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, that's what you went out to see. And that is who John is. Yes, he is, and more than a prophet. He is not just any prophet. It's been 400 years at this point since the last prophet um, in the, the the life of the people of God together. That, that uh, the last prophet was Malachi. It's been 400 years since Malachi was ministering to Israel. And in his prophecy, Malachi recorded a different prophecy about God and uh, that God had given, which was about John. He says, Jesus says, he, John, is the one of whom it is written, look, I'm sending my messenger before you who will prepare your way before you. He says, he says, John is not simply one more prophet in a long line that goes back a thousand years. John is not uh, significant because he's the first one in 400 years. John is significant because he is the forerunner. He is the one who would come before Messiah. That God said, before I send the Messiah, I will send one last prophet. And John is that prophet. And so because of that, Jesus says, I assure you, John is a great prophet. That he's right up there with the best. Maybe Jesus is saying that no one's better, but he certainly, he, he may, maybe he means everybody else is less of a prophet, but he certainly is saying that no one has ever been born who is greater than John the Baptist. That, uh, because of, because of 
um, his prophetic ministry, he may look like a loser. Uh, he may be in prison. But really, that's what you expect from a prophet. I mean, if you think about the, the, the prophets who came before him, if you think about uh, Elijah, Elijah had to flee from, from um, uh, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Uh, they had threatened his life. He had to flee off to the desert where he encountered them at the, the, the silent uh, and heard the silent sound of God. Um, the, the, the prophet Jeremiah, he was thrown into a well when the city was starving. He was thrown into a well hoping no one would remember and feed him that King Zedekiah's flunkies put him in a well. This is what happens to prophets. Jesus is reminding them, this is what happens to prophets. Nobody likes to hear prophets. And John is the prophet. No one has ever been born who is greater than John the Baptist. But then Jesus says, but there's something different. The reason that the prophets are persecuted is because they advance a different agenda, that they speak on God's behalf about the kingdom of God. He says, anyone, uh, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. That John functions outside the kingdom of, of heaven, that he is essentially an ambassador between the kingdom of heaven and this world. That because of that, he is not a part of the kingdom of heaven that he is speaking on behalf of the kingdom of heaven. And he says, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven, the thing that God is doing, that is better than even the best of people in this system. And so he says, the problem is not John. The problem is this system, the world system. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven is violently attacked as violent people seize it. That the kingdom of heaven presents a challenge to the people of this world, to, to the system of this world, because this world is filled with violent people. This world is filled with people who want to crush their enemies and see them driven before them and hear the lamentations of the women. That that is the problem with this world. The kingdom of heaven operates with a different set of values. The kingdom of heaven is motivated not by victory, not by domination, but by love. So Jesus concludes by saying, all the prophets and law prophesied until John came, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So let the person with ears hear. What does he mean by that? He means this is the, the choice that is set before us. Do we want results or do we want to win? Because the kingdom of heaven is advancing. The power of love is greater than the power to crush and destroy. But the question for us is, will we settle for simply achieving our objectives? Or do we have to indulge that desire for victory? Do we have to win? Do we have to dominate? Do we have to conquer? Because the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven operates with different rules and a different strategy. It is as different from the way of this world as the Fabian strategy is from the smell of napalm in the morning. So, will we operate with a kingdom ethic, with the, with the ethic of love, with the, the idea of loving our neighbors? This is what Jesus has been challenging his audience for since chapter 5, when he spoke about it in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, 
You have heard it said of old that you are to love your friends and hate your enemies. But I tell you to love your enemies. The kingdom of heaven, the the virtue of love, doesn't give you that sense that you're winning. But it works. There's no denying it works. When Jesus spoke these words, there might have been anywhere from a couple of dozen to maybe a hundred followers of Jesus. Today, every third person on the planet follows Jesus. The, the way that the world functions has been irrevocably transformed by the kingdom of heaven. That the, the, the ethics of the kingdom of heaven changed the status of, of the poor, changed the status of women and children created the idea of universal human rights that I was talking with the children about. These things come out of the virtue of love. They are taken for granted by people today who don't even call themselves Christians. Because they work. They are aligned with the way God made the world. They just don't give us the thrill of victory. They feel more like the agony of defeat. So, what do we do with this? Well, the question is, do we want to be successful? Do we want to achieve our objectives? Think about your objectives. Think about, please come in. Think about your objectives, whether they're, they are, um, uh, a particular relationship, uh, or, uh, your parenting or something like that. You want to win? Is that, is, is that all you're looking for to win? You know, I think that that's the, the biggest problem with our culture today, look at look at the internet. How do you get clicks? You destroy people, right? You 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 crush them. You know you know this person destroys this other person. Maybe they use facts and logic, but one way or the other, this person destroys that person. And you can watch that video and feel that dopamine hit because you're vicariously part of that conquest. Is that what you want? In your parenting? Is that the way you want to relate to your grandchildren? Is that what you want from your spouse? To conquer? To destroy? To win? So, that's the question. Do we want to operate like winners? Are we going to be motivated by the same thing that drove John? To advance the kingdom of heaven. 245 years ago, when the signers signed the Declaration of Independence, in that document, both at the beginning and the end, it speaks of those 13 former colonies of the British Empire as United States. And that was an aspirational statement. Uh, We all know from our history that we have never been all that united. Obviously, the Civil War is probably the peak period of disunity, but but we've never been super united, and that's true today. We have red states and we have blue states. We have red communities and and blue communities. We have we have arguments over everything from the PFD to the pandemic. One of the things that I was interested in in my as I was preparing this message, I was reading up on George Washington, and I learned that one of the things George Washington did, and I imagine it made him super popular at the time. Was he, uh, there was a, there was an outbreak of smallpox, and so he mandated quarantines and uh, the administration of a vaccine. So, 
So, the father of his country. Um, so, uh, and actually, you know, if you have qualms, if you're one of the people who's vaccine hesitant, I will tell you, the vaccine for smallpox, it was a very primitive, it was called variolation. It was a kind of a predecessor to vaccination. And it had a fatality rate. This is the vaccine. The vaccine had a fatality rate of 5%. So, so um, why were they deserting from Valley Forge? Well, that was one of the reasons. So, so um, we are we are disunited. We are not united. Um, but the question for us is, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to respond to the the disunity? Whether it's in our whether it's in our personal relationships or our life together as citizens of this country, are we going to be about winning, about domination? Are we going to be about the smell of napalm in the morning? Are we going to be about crushing our enemy and seeing them driven before us? Are we going to lead with love? Are we going to advance the kingdom ethic of Jesus? Because if we do, all we'll achieve is our objectives. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, you know that we have, we have drunk deeply of the of the mindset of this world, that what matters is to win, to never stop at equal, but to go way beyond even, to crush our enemies, to destroy them. Lord, when we look at what the movement of Jesus has achieved in the last 2,000 years, we cannot, we cannot deny its efficacy So, Lord, we pray that you would forgive us and make us truly new creatures so that we can lead with love, so that we can advance the kingdom of Jesus the way John did. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.